We often talk about looking at things with hindsight. Maybe it was a business venture that you got involved with and it didn't turn out very well. And in hindsight, you realize you should never have gone into business with that person. Maybe it would be something like this. I traded for some hockey cards back in 1994 and then sold them 10 years later. And I bought this card for $70 and I sold it for 400 But today, the card is worth 5000 And I'm thinking in hindsight, should have held on to that. But I made a tremendous bargain on that deal 10 years ago. But there's so many things like that where we, in hindsight, feel that we should have made a different decision. But you know something? There is a term that you may not be familiar with, and that term is blindsight. And that's the phenomenon where, at times, a person who is blind still has a sense of what's happening around them. And it's not a reference to the fact that the other senses are more heightened, or, and it's not a learned behavior over time. It's like how you can be sleeping, and somebody silently enters the room, and you just sense that there's someone there. Or maybe you're at a party, and you sense that someone's staring at you, And you look over and someone is standing there staring at you. And it's the same as when you approach a red light at an intersection. You're stopped and you just sense that the passenger in the car beside you is looking at you. And you look over and they are looking at you and they very quickly turn away. But have you ever experienced that? There's no medical or physiological explanation for those occurrences. But people are able to guess or predict something is there. Now we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter in the Bible. And we're going to do that over the next four weeks. And in here, we're going to see the reason for what we do. And it's the fact that there is something that we can't see visually. visually, But this room is filled with people who've experienced it. And that is faith. Faith is something that you can't actually see, but we've all experienced it. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So there's no medical or physiological explanation for it, But as we grow in our understanding of faith, we actually learn that there is a spiritual and a logical explanation for our faith. Now when it comes to faith today, many are quite skeptical of Christianity. And they're skeptical of God's word. And they say things like, can God really give a peace that passes all other understanding? Does he actually invite me to come to him when I am weary and burdened and he promises to give me rest? Can he really remove my sins as far as the east is from the west? Does God really hear my prayers and answer them? Does he really offer hope beyond this life? We have to be honest and admit that even within this room, there are people whose faith isn't as strong right now. And there are reasons for an immature faith. It might be because you're new to the faith and you're just developing a faith and it's going to take some time to grow it to the point of someone else. Or maybe 
It might be because your faith has never been tried or tested, and it just hasn't been strengthened in that way. Or maybe it's because of the circumstances in your life. Maybe you've lost your job, and you've been looking for months to find something, and nothing is coming along, and you're just getting frustrated. Or maybe your faith has been watered down by your group of friends because they're always making negative remarks about Christianity or the church. Or maybe it has been undercut by someone that you think is really brilliant, yet they don't have a faith. So you're thinking, well, maybe they know something that I don't. And it just starts to chip away at your faith. And the most common thread in all of these is that There's doubt about the presence of God. There are questions about his involvement in our lives, his personal involvement. There are frustrations about the circumstances we find ourselves in or some tragedy that we've experienced. And the result is that our faith is shaken. It's not shattered, but it's shaken. So today what we're going to do is focus on our inner conviction not what you look like on the exterior, not what exudes from each of you as you're walking through those doors on Sunday mornings. I'm talking about what's going on inside, what's truly in your heart of hearts that only you and God really know about. Lee Strobel said, there's no doubt about it. Doubt scares many Christians. They stare into the darkness at night pestered by vague uncertainties and persistent questions that make them feel anxious and vulnerable, almost as if they were experiencing spiritual vertigo. And Christians are afraid of doubt. They think, this is bad. But I want to begin by saying that there will be some times when doubt just kind of creeps into your life, and that's okay. Some may even go as far as to say that we need doubt in order to have our faith develop properly. But here's our verse today. It's Hebrews 11, 1 to 3. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So the Hebrew writer is challenging those Christians to have their eyes open so that they can really see, so that they can start looking for the evidence that maybe they've missed. And faith is the same way. There may be something there, even though you haven't noticed it. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, we have to take that leap of faith. But then Jack Cottrell, who taught for decades at Cincinnati Christian Seminary, he said, yes, but it's not a very long leap because we have such good evidence. And I've quoted Norm Geisler. He's a Christian author and apologist. I've quoted him a number of times when he said, God doesn't ask us to take a leap of faith and actually a blind leap of faith into the darkness. He actually calls us to take a step of faith into the light. And there's a big difference. But early on in the world, agnostic scientists were trying to describe why it is that the overwhelming population of people believe in God. And they said 
it must be because they're believing in something that these guys called the God of the gaps. And what was going on was the, the scientists' idea was that there were some significant gaps that science couldn't explain. So people believe in God. They fill in the gaps. But once they thought once those gaps are filled in by scientific evidence, then those people won't need to believe in God anymore. But the problem for their plan is that over the decades and centuries, the opposite has happened. As our scientific knowledge has multiplied, a belief in God as the architect and designer seems inevitable and even more obvious. The more we learn about something like the human eye, the more we discover about the intricacies of our species, the more we're drawn to the plausibility of God being the creator. See, if you believe the first verse of the Bible, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, then there's no big deal in believing that he made it rain for 40 straight days and nights. And, and then if you believe that, what's the big deal about a man living in the belly of a great fish for three days? And then, this, no disrespect, but what's the big deal about someone coming back from the dead? If God was able to create the world, then these things are nothing for him. That's why in the first three verses of Hebrews 11, it talks about how God created the world. And it does it because the Hebrew writer knows that we're now 2,000 years removed from when that would have been written about, and he knew that people would still be arguing about it. So he answers the question without us having to go back into the Old Testament. He just begins by saying that God created the world. Now, there are numerous times in one's life when you have to kind of swallow your pride a little bit and take that step of faith and affirm, Lord, I believe in you. And in this life, every question isn't going to be answered because if it was, we'd be divine instead of human because faith is really a gift to us because if we knew it all, then we wouldn't require any faith. And that's why the Bible says that God's ways are higher than our ways. But sometimes we doubt, but God is good with that. That's why we read in Jude, verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt. One guy said, if you've never had a question about your faith, then you probably don't have much of a faith. So it's okay to have questions. Now you might be thinking, okay, for a sermon on faith, this isn't going in the direction I thought it was going to. It seems like you're encouraging doubt, that you're saying that it's okay. And, well, yes, I am, provided that it leads you on a quest for the truth. And if doubt isn't accompanied by diligent investigation and soul-searching, then doubt just becomes nothing more than an excuse. But if it's an honest doubt, that, then it wants answers. And that is real and life-giving and can lead to healthy production because you realize, you know what? That makes sense. And when a fully committed follower of Christ is totally sold out for the Lord, everything just kind of falls in place for them. The first place that we look to for answers when we doubt is in the Bible. And what better place could we go for? 
because there we understand God and his plan for us. It's there that we get a clearer picture of who Jesus is. And the Apostle John wrote in John 20, verse 31, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So still not convinced that God understands your doubts? Let me acquaint you with a couple of individuals from the New Testament. Now we'll start with a first cousin of Jesus. We know him as John the Baptist. He was six years older than Jesus, and his main job was actually to prepare the way for Jesus. Although his preaching was powerful, he swallowed his pride, and he said this of Jesus, He must increase, and I must decrease. And when Jesus came to John to be baptized, John said, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. And after Jesus was baptized by John, and he began his ministry, John gets in trouble with the law. He starts criticizing people for immorality, and he even calls out the king, which isn't a very smart thing to do, and the king has him thrown into prison. So here's John. He's lonely. He's in prison. He's likely afraid. He's facing death. And he's wondering when Jesus is going to begin the reign that he has pictured in his mind. And he thought, well, it's probably going to take place while I'm here in prison. But he's excited thinking about that. But he's been here for some time, and his self-esteem is down. But people, they're keeping him informed of what Jesus is doing. But it must have been so difficult for this man. Here he is, accustomed to being in the wilderness and having all kinds of space, and now he's confined in this prison. The physical and the emotional strains were great, and the long days of waiting for answers didn't make it easier. So he's sitting in that jail, and he's hearing about the miracles that Jesus is performing everywhere he's going, but nobody's throwing any in his direction. And maybe he's thinking, you know what? If he is the Messiah, it says in the Old Testament that he will come to set the captives free. Well, I'm a candidate here. I'm a prisoner. So Jesus, if you're the Messiah, would you come and set me free? We're cousins for Pete's sake. But adversity often strengthens our faith. It's as if it's a testing ground. And faith is refined by the fires of adversity. But not all faith survives. But it's incredible the faith that I see in people around the world, in people that are living in countries where the church is being persecuted. We had a man from India speak here at a missions convention one time. And he said that he was praying that we in North America would experience persecution so that we would have some adversity, so that our faith would be stronger, so that we would see faith like people in India that were experiencing so much persecution. And he's right. That will make our faith grow. So here's John. And it's so difficult for him. And Satan is working on his mind. And he's planting all kinds of doubts in there. And the longer he sits there, the more doubts he has. 
So let's pick up the story and see what happens to this hero of the faith. So we're in Luke chapter 7, verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things, and calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now that's a fair question. Granted, it's a little strange coming from the cousin of Jesus, coming from the one who was preaching that he was the Messiah, and that even presented him in that way. After all, this is the, how John spoke of Jesus when he saw him in John 1.29. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So John's friends have asked this question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? But the next verse actually doesn't provide Christ's answer to them. Instead of saying anything to them, he actually does something. And his answer, it's more like an object lesson. So look at that next verse in 21. At that very time, and we wonder, why does it say that? Well, Luke is trying to convey that in the midst of the flow of what's taking place, they ask a question. And at that very time, Jesus was actually going on and completing what he was doing. And he doesn't answer them. So Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So Jesus gives them more proof of who he was. And then he turns to this line of people in front of him, and he begins to perform miracles. Instead of saying to them, just tell him that I'm setting up my kingdom and to just hang in there just a little bit longer. Or he doesn't say to them, you know what, I can't believe you guys. Go back and tell John that my feelings are incredibly hurt here because he doubts me and doubts my powers. He doesn't say any of that. Instead, he heals the people and he gives more evidence to them. It's evidence right before their eyes. And then in 22, so he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So still not convinced that doubt is normal and beneficial if it leads you on a search for the truth, Still uncertain how God views your occasional doubts and questions? Well, let's take a look at the conclusion of the conversation. Because he sends them on their way back to John the Baptist, the one who doubted, and hopefully he has given them something to eat before sending them away. So we're skipping down to verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So John the Baptist was a doubter, but he was honest in his doubt. And the information that Christ sent back to him with John's disciples gave him the evidence that he needed to deepen his faith. 
Now, some people pretend to believe because they don't want people to think that they doubt. They don't want to upset their parents. Just yesterday morning, I was in a four-hour Zoom meeting with the directors of Maritime Christian College, and the other pastors were bemoaning the fact that it was so hard to get people back in church after COVID regulations had been lifted. And one of them said, you know, with some of these people, it's actually that they didn't have their own faith. Their faith was actually just built upon their parents. And when there was that opportunity to have an excuse not to be there, they just bemoosed and have disappeared. But it can be so true. And then for others, they pretend to believe because they don't want to anger Christian leaders or maybe alienate Christian friends. And then maybe when their faith is challenged by a scoffing professor who says, you know, how do you believe in this Christianity stuff? They just can't suppress their doubts anymore, and their spiritual foundation just kind of crumbles. But remember how Jesus helped John overcome his doubt. He basically said, consider the evidence before you. And Jesus knows that if you do that, it will sincerely change your life. So fortunately for us, we read in the Bible in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So if we're honest, we know that the doubting description fits us at times. And in Hebrews 11, there is an emphasis upon this fact of faith. This huge emphasis on seeing what is beyond the physical, seeing what's not here on this earth, seeing promises of God as a reality, even though they're not yet realized or experienced in this life. That's faith. And Jesus always distinguished between faith and unbelief because unbelief says, I won't believe, while doubt says, I can't believe, and just requires a little more evidence. And can I tell you about another man who doubted? And no doubt, no doubt you've heard, uh, no doubt you've heard his name before, and you might even be familiar with the phrase that was coined after him, the doubting Thomas. And he wasn't present when Jesus appeared the first time after his resurrection, this first appearance to his disciples. And he was away somewhere else, and he thought that these guys were crazy, that they were hallucinating, that they were smoking something funny, because they were going crazy. And they were saying, we saw the Lord, we saw Jesus, he came here. And he's like, no way, just like the Valley Girls back in the 1980s. There's no way that this has happened. And so then in John 20, verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now the next time Jesus showed up, Thomas was present, and Jesus didn't go to Peter and John and say, Hi guys, how are you doing today? But he scans the room, and he's looking for Thomas, and then he goes directly toward Thomas. And he said, Thomas, see my hands, see my side, put your finger into that wound, put your hand into that wound, because he wanted him to believe. 
And then Thomas did just that. And then he gets down on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. So because he was able to see, he stopped doubting and he believed. But that's not the end of the conversation. And please don't miss this, because Jesus actually goes on to make a very, very specific recommendation to you, to those of us that live in 2022. And he knew the setting. He understood what was taking place in that room. He knew that seeing is believing. And in the midst of that setting, in John 20, 29, we read, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. That's us. That's you. That's me. And you know what the Bible keeps people? It tells us what keeps people from having an inner conviction. And can I tell you what keeps people from having that heartfelt faith? And there are probably many reasons, but I want to reduce it down to just two. First of all, there is an unwillingness to investigate the evidence. And that's a big excuse. And there are so many people that just don't want to go to the trouble of investigating the evidence. They just don't want to believe. They don't want to spend the time checking things out. So there's an unwillingness to evaluate the evidence. Back when I was 18 and my brother James was 17, we were both working at 48, 50 hours a week. That's what college students used to work back then, or high school students. And he was at a golf course, I was at a campground, and we never got to golf together very much. But then as the summer went along, I got to golf with some of our relatives, and they said, uh, hey Greg, your brother is actually becoming a better golfer than you. And I was like, no way. And because I had always been better than him. And I didn't want to examine the evidence. I just wanted to go on thinking, I'm a better golfer than he is. Well, later in September, we got our schedules together and we went for a head-to-head -head golf match. And I shot an 86. I was a little off my score that day, but that's still a good score for those of you who know golf. And my brother shot a 71. So it was determined from that point on, after examining the evidence, that he was the better golfer. It started to rain on number 17, and I actually held my umbrella over him to keep him dry so that it wouldn't mess with the score that he had. And there is a second question, a thing that keeps people from examining, and that is the fear that if Christianity is true, then they're going to have to change their behavior. If it's really true, they're going to have to change the way they view the world. It's going to change the way they live their lives every day. It's going to change the way they act. It's even going to change the way they speak, and they don't want to make those changes. The late Rabbi Zacharias said, A man rejects God neither because of intellectual demands nor because of the scarcity of evidence. A man rejects God because of a moral resistance that refuses to admit his need for God. So in other words, we want to have ourselves on the throne of our lives. We don't want to place God there because that is his rightful place. 
We want to do it our way. We want to call the shots. We don't want to do it God's way. Now, you may be listening to this message and you aren't a believer in Jesus Christ. In fact, others of you may deep down be thinking, I haven't really bowed my knee to Jesus in allegiance to him as Lord. You may put on a good act to keep peace in your home. You may show up here a couple of times a month. But that's just an external display because there's no inner conviction that's going on. And some of you may be here and you're honestly saying, I don't think I can even understand what this is all about. I don't see what these other people seem to see. But can I give you a warning? There are many people in this room, there are many people that are watching our live stream that were just this way, some even a few years ago, some a longer time. They just didn't see. For them, faith was just an exterior display. But now it's something that has become an inner conviction. They kicked the tires. They studied the facts. They actually opened their Bibles and read it. And in the time, God did what he does best. And he led them into faith with him. So the Lord says in Jeremiah 29, verse 12, Then he will call on me, and come and pray to me. Excuse me, then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And that's an incredible promise that if you're in that checking out the Christianity phase, if you're just trying to figure it all out, God promises that if you seek him with all your heart, that you will find him. And as you study the claims of Christ, you'll discover that there's no one else like him. Back in August of this year, a mint condition Mickey Mantle baseball card sold for $12.6 million. And it obliterated the record for sports collectibles. Now, Mickey Mantle, now I didn't have that card. I wish I did. And... uh, I would do some great things for our church because we're going to have to make some changes here as time goes on this fall in regards to our building. But he he was one of the best players to ever play in the major leagues, and he played for the New York Yankees. And even though he was an incredible player, he lived a very hard and a very immoral lifestyle. And shortly after his career ended, he had a long and difficult uh, deal with uh, his liver. He ended up having a liver transplant because of all the drinking that he did. And then he began a long and difficult fight against cancer. And when he was battling cancer, he called up one of his old teammates from the Yankees. And the guy's name was Bobby Richardson. And Bobby Richardson was known as a Christian. And as they were talking, Mantle just said, would you pray for me? I just want to ask you to be praying for me as I'm battling cancer. And then they talked back and forth a little more. And then eventually, Mantle said to Richardson, he said, I've actually become a Christian. And remembering Mickey Mantle from his playing days and remembering his past, his skeptical friend tested Mantle by asking him, 
Why in the world would God accept you into heaven? And over the phone, Mickey Mantle simply said this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Okay, right answer. That's faith in the fact that God allowed his son to come into this world to become one of us. That son grew up to be a man that lived a perfect life and died as a perfect sacrifice for each one of us. But then on top of all of that, he was able to conquer the grave so that you and I have the hope of eternal life. Why is it that when we think of faith, we've come to think that it's more difficult than it is? It just comes down to what Mickey Mantle said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's that simple. Maybe today you're willing to accept that simple message for the very first time. And I'm not asking you to take this blind step. This is just a short step of faith. And if you do that, we will guide you through every step of that decision. Please make that decision. Talk to me about it before you leave. Or talk to James or our other leadership. Or contact us through the week and we will get together with you. But make that decision to have Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let's stand together and sing.